1: Cool Canadian history. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, season five, episode two The Pirate Queen of Canada, Maria Lindsay Cobham. There is great debate over whether Maria Lindsay Cobham's life is fact or fiction, or a blending of both. Either way, her story makes for a remarkable tale of a woman living and thriving in a brutal and violent man's world, avoiding those who would see her hung by the neck and terrorizing the North Atlantic Ocean into recognizing her as the true Pirate Queen of Canada. This week is a tough one in terms of a book recommendation because no academic or popular public works exist on the legendary woman. I will thus recommend an edited collection of incredible stories. It's called Pirates and Outlaws of Canada by Harold Horwood and Ed Butts. This was published in 1981, and it's a collection of stories of the most notorious of Canada's villains from the early 17th century all the way up until the early 1930s, with a specific chapter on Maria herself, amongst others, of Canada's most infamous villains. Okay. So let's go back to the 17th century. You see, the 17th to the mid-18th century is often thought of as the golden age of piracy. Throughout a slowly globalizing world, pirates and their less imposing criminal cousins, privateers, roamed the sea lanes preying upon the multitudes of sailing vessels carrying all kinds of wealth, from gold to silk to furs, throughout the various ports and cities around the world. It is during this period that famous pirates such as Captain Henry Morgan, of Captain Morgan's rum fame, Edward Teach, aka Blackbeard, and Bartholomew Roberts carved their names into the infamous history of the Seven Seas. The pirate community was almost exclusively a men's club, There were certainly exceptions, and some famous ones at that, but generally speaking, a pirate's life was a man's life, and women on board sailing vessels were generally considered bad luck. This is what makes the story of Canada's most famous pirate unique, for she was a woman who, with her husband at her side, forged a legacy that today is a fascinating mix of both fact and fiction. Maria Lindsay met Eric Cobham in the seaport of Plymouth on the southwestern coast of England. They were both in their early 20s. Maria, a local girl, was notoriously beautiful, and many in Plymouth courted her. Eric Cobham was from further east in Dorset. By the time Eric met Maria, he was already living a pirate's life. You see, in his late teens, like many young men in Western England at the time, he had set out to Newfoundland to work in the fishing industry. By the late 17th century, Newfoundland's fishing industry was bustling, heavily connected with the ports of England's West Coast. In fact. By the time Eric arrived on the island, Newfoundland was dotted with permanent and semi-permanent fishing colonies, much of which makes up the towns and villages in Newfoundland today. Newfoundland itself is a jagged piece of land. It has numerous inlets, bays, and peninsulas, creating a complex and winding coastline, perfect for fishing villages, but also perfect for pirates looking to hide out. In fact, Newfoundland had become known as the nursery school for pirates in training. The island was perfect for raiding the sea lanes entering and exiting the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and because it enabled so many to successfully hide, many would be pirates could find temporary safety from British or French patrols. There was plenty of wealth to be had for the criminally daring and plenty of places to hide in Newfoundland. Thus, Eric soon abandoned his life as a fisherman and fell in with smugglers who could use Newfoundland's ragged coast to hide from the authorities. Through his time as smuggler, Eric eventually fell in with proper pirates. And by the time he ended up in Plymouth and in front of Maria Lindsay, he was a full-blown criminal of the ocean, a captain of his own pirate crew. Now, Maria Lindsay was working in a local tavern when she met Eric. She was serving drinks, and perhaps, though it is difficult to know for sure, offering more than just drinks. Eric was immediately smitten with the young, outgoing, and tough barmaid. In fact, he was so smitten, he offered her a chance to go with him onto his ship and serve with him and the rest of his crew. Maria jumped at the chance, and despite grumbling from Eric's crewmates, Maria was now a pirate. For Maria, piracy offered her a number of things. Firstly, it offered a chance at more money than a scullery maid slash prostitute could earn in a low-brow Plymouth tavern. But it also offered her a chance to break free from traditional gender roles. By becoming a pirate, she had entered into a facet of the male world, one in which few women could freely roam, and by doing so, innately shattered any social constraints that bound her to traditional expectations of women in 18th century England. And boy did Maria take to piracy, as if she was born to it. She was known to gamble extensively, drink heavily, and eat heartily. Their very first score was actually near Bristol, where they hijacked a merchant ship sailing off with 40,000 pounds in sterling. They then captured a fast-moving sloop near Nantucket, Massachusetts, abandoning their old ship for the faster new one. This new sloop was perfect for the pair and their crew. Sixty-five feet in length with a shallow draft, it was fast, sleek, and could enter waters where larger naval man-of-wars could not. They then sailed north, past Cape Breton Island, into the rich and vulnerable supply highway that ran through the Gulf of St. Lawrence, into the Cabot Strait, and out to the Atlantic Ocean. This was an extremely busy waterway, not only Was there a steady supply of French ships sailing between New France, Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island, then called Isle Royale, and out into the Atlantic Ocean? But it was also part of a lucrative global triangular trade, very important to England's growing economy. You see, ships would arrive in Newfoundland from England with salt and provisions. In Newfoundland, the goods would be unloaded and the ships would be reloaded with furs and newly salted fish. Incidentally, the furs made this region a unique one in terms of potential wealth for pirates. Because around the world, not many pirates were raiding ships and getting furs and then turning those furs into money. But the furs that were coming from North America were worth a lot of money. Now, these ships, newly loaded up with goods from the New World, would take them either to the Mediterranean, where the goods were swapped for wine, olive oil, and dried fruits, or to the Caribbean, where the goods were swapped for sugar, rum, and molasses. From here, the ships would return home to England. So just imagine it in your head, from England to Newfoundland, then to either the Caribbean or the Mediterranean, and back up to England, the Triangle. In many ways, Maria and Eric had stumbled on a sea lane that was relatively free from anti-pirate naval patrols, full of rich pickings with little serious danger when compared to other rich sea lanes around the world. Just a gentle reminder, friends, if you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. The safe harbor Eric and Maria chose as their base was a place known as Sandy Point a two-kilometer-long sand spit on the west coast of southern Newfoundland that entered into the Bay St. George. Today, it is a deserted island due to erosion, but in the early 18th century, it was a perfect spot. It was two days sailing to the rich sea lanes of the St. Lawrence Gulf and Cabot Strait. It was well-hidden from passerbys, and the shoals that guarded Sandy Point were impassable for larger ships, especially warships. Based out of this ideal location, Eric and Maria would cement their names as feared pirates of the North Atlantic Ocean. Now their crew was a ragtag collection of ex-fishermen and defectors from the British and French Navy, many of whom chafed at the low wages and brutal disciplinarian nature of their previous occupations the unnamed black sloop of Eric and Maria's ambushed ship after ship. The goods they stole were then illegally sold in various ports up and down the Atlantic coast, often on the Gaspé Peninsula, specifically to French merchants or in French free ports where massive black markets were run by French aristocrats. You see, for the French... These goods were a way to combat the growing power of the British Empire, and goods stolen from the British were highly sought after. Now, over time, as more and more merchant vessels were taken by the pirate pair and their crew, the leadership dynamics began to change. As their reputation spread, it became more and more obvious that Maria was supplanting Eric as the captain of that unnamed black pirate vessel. Now, Maria and Eric were notoriously violent. Maria, in particular, shocked even her crew with her wanton and oftentimes random displays of violence, perhaps part of the reason that she was able to supplant Eric as the captain. She had no hesitation to murder people with her own hands if they disobeyed her, especially those of captured merchant crews. She once, for instance, tied a captain and his two mates to their windlass in order to use them for target practice with her newly stolen pistol. After a successful raid on a smaller vessel of the Royal Navy, Maria stripped a young officer whom she had just run through with her own sword and donned his uniform. This would become her trademark. Maria Lindsay Cobham would forever be known as the pirate queen who wore a British naval officer's uniform. There was also another reason why Maria was becoming infamous. You see, unlike other pirates who would kill only a couple of the captured crew members and generally let the rest go, Maria often advocated for murdering the entire crew. You see, she figured that if no one survived, then that ship and its crew would be assumed to have drowned, and not the victims of pirates, and thus no one would come looking for them, and no one would in turn come looking for Maria and her pirate crew.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: One time, she was purported to have poisoned an entire captured crew simply to watch them die on her deck. On another voyage, it was said that she ordered an entire captured crew sewn into gunny sacks and then tossed into the sea to be drowned while she watched, of course. For two decades... Maria led Eric and their crew in brutal pirate expeditions. Incredibly, they evaded capture for longer than most pirates. While Maria seemed to love her life as the scourge of the St. Lawrence, it was Eric who convinced her to eventually lay down the Cutlass and officer's uniform. By the end of the two decades together, they had a small fleet of ships, incredible wealth, and cargo that was being smuggled up and down the Atlantic coast. Maria relented, and the Cobhams settled in La Havre in northern France, where they bought a large estate with their own private harbor, servants, and quickly became ingratiated with the local French aristocracy, passing themselves off as emerging wealthy landowners. Now sometime during this period, they were also able to have and raise three children. What's really fascinating about this period is that Eric Cobham completely reinvented himself as a wealthy landowner, a member of the new money gentry, a pillar of aristocratic respectability. He became a magistrate and then a judge, an incredible rise to power from a lowly English fisherman. Sadly, Eric and Maria's relationship while posing as landed gentry collapsed. Maria became an alcoholic, particularly addicted to laudanum, which was an opium-laced spirit. Eric fell to frequently visiting brothels and gambling halls. As their relationship fell apart, Maria became more and more a recluse. Some even said she was going insane. One day, Maria simply disappeared. And for two days, Eric led search parties until her body was found washed up on the shore near her and Eric's estate. An autopsy later revealed that Maria had poison in her body. It is impossible to know if this was self-inflicted or not. Perhaps she sought to put an end to what had become a miserable life as a member of the aristocracy. Perhaps she was so mentally ill that she sought suicide as a way out. Perhaps she felt remorse for the many murders and depravities she had committed, and this tried to atone, or perhaps an old enemy had finally found her. We will never know. Shortly after Maria's death, Eric also took to his deathbed. And it was on his deathbed where he recounted the pirate life that him and Maria had led prior to coming to France. In fact, Eric confessed his entire life story to a priest only after making that priest promise that he would publish the accounts. The priest kept his word and a short volume on the life and death of Maria and Eric Cobham was published immediately after Eric's death. It is said that the children, now fully grown, were so horrified by the revelations that their parents were brutal killers and pirates of the worst nature that they bought up every copy printed and burned them all. However, rumor has it that one book still remains, buried deep in the National Archives in Paris, waiting to be opened. It should be pointed out Maria's story is still hotly debated amongst maritime historians. If she did indeed terrorize the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the Cabot Strait, then there should have been records of her, at least in terms of the French or British Navy trying to hunt her down. However, none exist. Yet, perhaps her strategy of murdering all who she captured actually worked, and people truly had no idea if the ships were captured or had just sank by natural causes. Some historians think that Maria and Eric did indeed exist, but their exploits were exaggerated after their deaths. Some have said they were most likely wreckers, that being pirates who simply preyed on vessels already damaged and unable to escape. There is very little documentary evidence backing up their existence or their exploits, yet there are a fair number of references to them in a variety of questionable popular accounts from Newfoundland during the period. They live in the oral history and the folklore of the island and the time. Regardless, Maria lives on in pirate legend, a brutal terror of the North Atlantic Ocean who incredibly avoided the hangman's noose, though meeting her own tragic end, yet, for a time, truly was a pirate queen. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D O C B O R Y S. Thank you for tuning in and stay cool.